We turn to God's Word as found in Isaiah 59. And I'm going to read this lengthy passage, it's the full chapter, to get at the context of a verse, which I will repeat at the end of the reading, that will serve as the context to the text that we're going to examine this morning. I hope that all makes sense to you. Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come designed to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. 
And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And then verse 19 once again. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And then we go from there to Matthew 8, where we'll pick up the reading at verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Thus far, the reading of God's word to us this morning. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the proclamation of it. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Back in 1994, a group of 92 laity, clergy, bishops, professors gathered to consult about the future of the United Methodist Church. The concern had been that the United Methodist Church had departed from a common confessional voice and was suffering from private versions of the faith. This call was for all laity and for all clergy to confess the person, work, and reign of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the call was to encourage all to confront and repudiate teachings and practices in the denomination that currently challenge the truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the Lord of all. Those were the actual words. And much of the impetus behind the call for this confessing movement was about rejecting inclusiveness and tolerance. Again, this was back in 1994. And denying the claim that congregants were free to decide what is true and what is false, what is good and what is evil. Similarly, in 2001, the members of the Presbyterian Church in the USA, or PCUSA, had begun the Confessing Church movement because the framers had had enough 
of the denominational implosion into spiritual decline. When the PCUSA was looking at eliminating fidelity and chastity statements from the Book of Order, thereby permitting sessions to ordain elders who affirmed same-sex unions or heterosexuals who engaged in non-marital sex, this movement toward confessional orthodoxy had begun. Now, in more recent times, among the Methodist Church and the Southern Baptists, and even in some Reformed denominations, there have been battles within on issues of sexuality and gender orientation and inclusiveness. And the height of irony, beloved, in, in any local church or in, in any denomination comes when the fellowship denies that Jesus Christ alone is exclusively the way, the truth, and the life. Confessional movements come when there is an opposition to ecclesiastical academicians or sometimes spiritual or synodical tyrants that seem to take jackhammers to the foundation of the church in order to eliminate the, the cornerstone or to pour on their mixture of, quote-unquote, fresh concrete over the existing base. So removing Jesus from the church, essentially what this is all about, causes the church to cease being the church. Again, removing Jesus from the church causes the church to cease being the church. And this was Peter's point in Acts 4.11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So what does all of this have to do with our text? Everything. Everything. Our Lord Jesus Christ has come to the scene where there is an absence of universal, orthodox confession of faith. Absolutely missing. And all that was left of the Old Covenant Church were traditions and interpretations that had been spawned by Jewish sectarianism. That's all. Religious law is what is right in the sight of the local sect. Now, to be sure, there remain a faithful remnant, but the church was muddied by heterodoxy, by false beliefs. And, and for our, our young people, our children here, heterodoxy means crooked thinking. Orthodox or orthodoxy means straight thinking. We believe by God's grace, we are orthodox, we are straight thinkers. By his grace, again. What is right in man's sight has always been a problem for man since the fall. The time of Christ, it had been many, many, many years since the mighty theocracy had been divided into two kingdoms, with neither Samaria or Jerusalem, the two capitals, respectively speaking, confessing the faith that was once taught to them by Moses. And then there's also the matter of doubt. As the Hebrews were under Roman dominance, the Jewish life within the enclaves was a mixture of anticipation and doubt. Would there be a Messiah, as promised by the prophets of old, who would lead Israel, like Moses had done, out of the throes of imperialistic tyranny? 
But when you examine the history of Israel, you will find that doubt had always plagued the once mighty power. In fact, Israel began her history as a separate power on doubt. On doubt. And doubt would become her worst enemy. An enemy more formidable than the occupiers of her land, more formidable than the heathen that surrounded her eventual borders and would later invade her. Now, after witnessing the great power of the Lord who parted the Red Sea and liberated the Old Testament church from Egypt and Israel, commission Aaron to forge an idol out of gold. Doubt in the promises of the one and only living and true God fill their veins with abominable and vile passion to float into their hearts, corrupting them into wanting something they could see, something they could touch. And generation after generation, doubt haunted the Israelites as a nation would despise the heavenly king. Their identity crisis wasn't that they did not have a king. Their identity crisis was rooted in their sin. They wanted an earthly king. They demanded one. And they had got one, didn't they? They had one. Wanted to pursue what was right in the eyes of God. Right, King Saul? And then this brings us to a fascinating meeting now, many, many years later, with the real king, Messiah of the Jews, and a Roman centurion who would confess what the old church did not. Three words. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. That's essentially the centurion's confession. Jesus is Lord. And so the arrogance of idolatry, which began the history of Israel and permeated to the contemporary Jews, we have the humility of faith of a Gentile. Instead of objects of, of heathen worship that plagued a nation, we have the, the simple object of faith of a Roman citizen. And instead of doubt that is further perpetuated through the worship of, of wood and metal, we have the assurance of faith. The humility of faith, the object of faith, and the assurance of faith are three points this morning. So very quickly, let's look at this humility of faith. Roman centurions were men of stature. They were esteemed commanders in the Roman legion. As the name centurion suggests, each commander had a hundred men under his rank. Now, the equivalent rank in today's armed services would likely be something of captain. And as we look at the historical context of scripture reading, the Romans were the occupying power of Palestine. And, and this centurion who seeks Christ may have had overall command of the garrison in the city of Capernaum. He possessed a wealth of power well beyond his hundred men, and he was influential over the lives of those in his territory. That's how the game was played back in, in the day. That's how authority was understood. It was within his reach to extort money as many officers in the legions received gains beyond their military supplement. This was not unusual. And how can we be sure that such corruption took place? Well, recall when the soldiers asked John the baptizer, what should we do? And in Luke 3.14, John replied, don't extort money. 
And don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The centurion, in our text, does not do this sort of thing. He doesn't take from the people. In fact, he operates from a way different worldview. Instead of stealing money from the local citizens, he spends his own to improve their way of living. And we know this because in a similar account, as reported in Luke 7, 9, we see the Jewish elders confirm how the centurion was one who had built the synagogue for them. Moreover, they testify, he loved their nation. There were Roman citizens, beloved, who were known as God-fearers. And this centurion in the story fits this profile. That is, he was a Gentile by birth, but but someone who had come to embrace the tenets of Judaism. However, he had not gone so far as likely to be circumcised and become a card-carrying Jew. He was someone, though, who elevated faith over individual gain. We have before us a humble man who is not above loving and caring for one of his servants. And the word here in the Greek is doulos. Doulos. And it means slave. That's what it really means. It means slave. A slave or bondservant of a centurion was disposable. If the slave became sick or old, the Roman officer would replace him with a more able servant. Because of the so-called self-importance that typified most centurions, Roman officers had little time to care for their underlings. Not so this centurion in our text. In fact, he is so concerned for his bond servant that he humbles himself before the elders, as Luke reports it, though that detail is absent in Matthew's gospel account, asking for them to contact Jesus and plead with him to heal his servant. It is well worth observing that the centurion says he is unworthy. Ironically, the elders failed to see this humility. They just missed it. It blew right past them. When they told Jesus in Luke's account that this centurion is worthy of deserving this favor. But in Matthew 8, 5, the centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, think about this for a moment. Here is this mighty official of the all-conquering Roman Empire telling Jesus, a man who had not so much had a house to call his own, at least an earthly house, that he was unworthy to have Jesus come to his house. The humility of the centurion is contrasted against the arrogance of the Jewish elders against the church, who believe that that, that works righteousness merits justification, that the centurion's own works must have made him worthy of the favor of Christ. You do this for this man, for all that he's done for us. Our centurion brother knows better. He knows that the favor of Christ is all about grace and, and not about this works business. A person might think the centurion would argue quite differently, but but he understands regardless of his rank, his station in life, that just like the tax collector in Christ's parables, 
He is no better than a wretched man who cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As the apostle wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. He got that. Now, how could this ensuring have, have that great understanding of these words before they were written by the apostle? Because, dear friends, he understood that no one is worthy of Christ or his favor. This is one lesson that can be drawn from the centurion and is echoed all throughout Scripture. Jesus said of John the baptizer, I tell you that among those born of women there is not there has not risen among anyone greater than he. And yet John told the people that he was not even worthy to stoop down and loose Christ's sandal strap. The point is that we merit nothing. We, we, we earn not a morsel of grace which has been given freely to us. Salvation. Salvation is all of Christ and entirely by grace through faith alone. And the sad irony, and it's really a tragedy here, is that the Jewish elders should have known better, did not understand that the centurion was petitioning out of faith and not from rank. If we are trusting in our own works of obedience to to make you fit for salvation, you are Hoping in vain, for even our best works are tainted by sin. How different the story would have been if the centurion believed in his own good deeds, favored Christ's attention, and the medals of his valor, and the testimony of the locals prompted him to, to order Jesus to come to him. You come to me for all that I've done. Uh, he would have been found guilty of pride. And instead of clothing Christ's splendid robe of righteousness, he would have appeared before God attired in Roman armor, which would amount to nothing, and then filthy rags. Dear friends, no man so attired that way will stand in the day of judgment. No man, no woman, no child. Did not Christ himself tell what would happen to man who, who shows up at the Lamb's wedding feast? clothed in anything other than his perfect righteousness? Will that man not be bound, hand and foot, taken away and cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth? If you want the answer to that question, turn to Matthew 22. That hopeless imagery is not lost on the faithful. True faith, like that of the centurion, is humble. As Proverbs 15, 33 says, humility comes before honor. This centurion got that. So we move from humility of faith to its object. There can be no other answer but Christ. No other answer but Christ. Notice the implication of the words of the centurion in verse 9. He is a man who is under authority, but he issues commands and the things that, ha- that he has commanded are carried out by those under him. 
He does not need to do them himself. He commands and those under him obey. That's how it works. So do you sense some arrogance on the part of the Roman officer here? Not at all. The centurion is, is implying as he is subordinate to authority, he too has been given authority. As Christ is subordinate to the Father in so much that he does the will of the Father, Christ too has authority over all creation. As the centurion is the Roman army, Christ is God, a point missed by the Jews. He says, I know you do not need to come to my house in order for my servant to be healed. Only say the word and he will be well. He is saying, you, O oh Lord, have authority over everything in the universe. All you need to do is command this disease to be gone, and my servant will be healed. Now, who has that kind of authority but God alone? So what is this centurion saying? Jesus is Lord. He is God. He firmly believes that Jesus is the Messiah in the full Old Testament sense of that word. Now we qualify his understanding because remembering as Christ walked the earth, the gospel is being declared. The centurion did not have the complete gospel, uh, you know, but, but he knows enough of the Old Testament that he acknowledges that Jesus is indeed the one who Isaiah said would come to his people. In chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, the Hebrew word that means God with us. Emmanuel. That's the name of our church. God with us. Beloved, God is with us right now. God is with us in spirit. But back in the day, God is with us in a very, very, very true physical manifestation. And the centurion knew it. It literally means the Messiah is God incarnate dwelling amongst his people. The centurion's faith is firmly in, in Christ. This is why his, uh, why his Lord and our Lord calls the faith great. Many Israelites were, were not even convinced after witnessing the parting of the Red Sea, which must have been quite an event, right? Spectacular. They just did not comprehend the awesome power of their God. They didn't believe it. They doubted it. They held it in unrighteousness. As recorded in John 1.11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That long passage that we read before we got to our text this morning is all about that. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So who's coming now? Those from the West. This Roman centurion. But this Gentile evidences a, a profound faith in Jesus that says that God has forever changed his heart. Now we get to our concluding point, the assurance of faith. Observe how the centurion's faith produces unshakable assurance. He trusts in the Lord and knows him 
full well what the God-man can do. In Luke's account, he sees Christ coming towards his house and hurries to send his servants to him. Lord, do not trouble yourself. And then, but say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion knows that with one word, that with one word, his servant can be saved. He's assured that everything that Jesus has promised to do, he will do. And Jesus has already indicated that he was willing to come and heal his servant. The centurion did not have to see Christ. That's another point that people fail to see. He did not have to see Christ to believe it. Dear friends, this very same assurance that comes from faith confirms that that God has promised to save his people, that God has promised to save you and me. We don't need signs and wonders. We don't need visual depictions of Jesus. We, we, We don't work out our salvation on our own because we can't. We cannot do this. It's foolery to even think that somehow we can nudge the needle toward our salvation, that that what Jesus did was a good start, but we need to finish it for him. In Luke 6.35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So what about our faith? Do we walk in humility, knowing our great sins, and the greater work of our Redeemer. Is the sole object of our faith our Lord Jesus Christ? Does our faith assure us of our salvation? Or do we rely on something else to stimulate our faith? That's what the church is all about today. Give me something, preacher. Give me a good story outside of God's word. I don't want to hear about the sin stuff. Give me a titillating story that will make me Believe all the more in what God has promised in his word. Is his word not sufficient for us? Brothers and sisters, between the accounts of Matthew 8 and Luke 7, we we don't know if the centurion had actually met Christ or if he was only speaking through the elders. But our text sufficiently indicates that the centurion did not have to see Christ firsthand in order to believe. His faith did not rest on seeing his believing. And that's huge. Because the presence, the spiritual presence of God was in this Gentile. And so the centurion understood at least four blessed things. Four blessed things. And I'm just going to list them. One, there is a God. There is a God. Two, I am not he. I am not he. I am not God. Three, I am undeserving of his grace. I am undeserving of his grace. And four, I can rest in his promises. I can rest in his promises. Those four things, the Gentile not only knew, but believed with a hearty trust. And it is so sad 
the church missed it. The elders completely missed it. How sad the church at large struggles to unite under an orthodox confession and positions its understanding of Jesus under cultural norms, current cultural norms. They look at God's word in light of culture. And that's why I spoke at the outset, those different meetings of the churches, trying to address the heterodoxy of the day. How pockets and remnants strive toward confessional movements to get the clergy and laity to return to the one only living and true God as defined by Scripture. So may we here walk in humility, knowing that within the object of our faith is the assurance of our salvation. Let's pray.